So we're going to start as we have um, each week with a brief review from last week. And last week we met the first two kings of the nation Israel, and we started with Saul. And we we were reminded before we launched into Saul that God desired for Israel to be a theocracy, not a monarchy. He wanted to be their king. He did not want them to have an earthly, physical king. Uh, but they continued to whine and moan and complain. And so ultimately he gave them what they asked for. And so Saul was the first king of the nation Israel. And we talked about how Saul was exactly what the Israelites thought they wanted in a king. But we read that passage that talked about all the things that that king would demand from the Israelites. And it was a lengthy list. So Saul is exactly what they think they need. The key event was his 40-year reign as king. And we talked about how, for the first time, the Israelites were not being led, uh, or being led by someone not desiring to follow God's will. And we used several examples from Saul's life that his attitude and his actions reflected a disregard for God's will and God's law if it didn't suit his purposes. The key relationship for Saul was jealousy, the cancer of the soul. We talked about how his jealousy of David ate away at his soul, continued to plague him through, through most or all of his adult life after David had defeated Goliath. From there we went from the individual that Israel thought was exactly what they wanted as a king to the individual that God desired to be the type of king for his, uh, his chosen people, and that was David. And David was described as a man after God's own heart, and we talked about that's what marked his life, not just his, his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, he too had a 40-year reign. The first key event for David was his 40-year reign. And then also the Davidic covenant, probably the second most important, it may even be tied with the Abrahamic covenant as far as impacting the nation Israel, this covenant that God made with David and promised him a throne, a throne sitter, and a kingdom. And we talked about how initially that would be fulfilled through David's physical offspring, his sons, and, you know, with Solomon being the next one in line that we'll talk about tonight. But that one day future at Jesus' second coming to earth, that Davidic covenant would be fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. He would be that throne sitter on that throne reigning over that kingdom. Interestingly enough, remember that this, that Jesus would not fulfill this covenant when he returned, when he came to earth the first time. The first time, this was not his intent. He was not coming as reigning king. He was coming as sacrifice. And so this would not be fulfilled for his first coming, but his second coming, which we continue to look forward to, he will be the ultimate fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. And then the key relationships, two of them, one was God's design for leadership. God's criteria for what he wants in a leader, very different than what we individuals, men and women, would choose as our le uh, for our leaders. And then also, your sin will find you out. What David and Bathsheba did in private was judged before the entire nation, and everyone knew what had happened. And so, but we talked about, I didn't want to leave on a seriously sad note, but we talked about with David, fortunately, we don't always see this in characters in the, in the scriptures, but with David, there was a significant sinful act, this adultery and then the subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, but there was repentance and restoration. And again, that man after God's own heart was what marked David's life. 
And so from David, we move into um, our new content for tonight. And the first person that we encounter is Solomon. Uh, Solomon was the third king of Israel. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But he was the second son to David and Bathsheba. Remember, that first son died as a result of uh, discipline for their sin. And so that first child was um, sick for a period of time and then passed away. We talked about that last week and um, how David was confident that he would see that child again one, one day future. But this second son born to David and Bathsheba was Solomon. And everyone knows, when, you, when I say Solomon, what do you think of? What are a couple of things? You, there may be more than one thing you think wisdom. of. Wisdom. 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 Anything else? Temple. The temple. Anything else? Rich. Riches. Yeah. So we're going to talk about how all that came to be. Uh, who has first king? This is a long passage. I apologize to whoever took this card. Uh, first Kings 3, 3 to 14. Who's got that one? And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy according as he walked before thee in truth, and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child, I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked for riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, and I will lengthen thy days. Thank you. I love this passage because I think it shows us how much God loves to bless his children. And, you know, some might say that this was a bit of a test for Solomon, but I just, I love the flow of this passage. So, basically, God appears to Solomon and says, what do you need? Let me know what you need. You can ask for anything. And Solomon, very self-deprecating in this passage, says, I'm a little kid, and you've done all this great stuff with my father David, and, you know, here I am, I don't know how to go out, I don't know how to come in when it's raining outside. Um, It just, he's very, like, I need anything that I can glean from you. And so he says, what I need, more than anything else, is uh, an understanding heart to discern between good and evil. And God is so pleased with this request that he in abundance grants that request and he says yes i'm going to give you this and you're going to be 
wiser than any who have come before, any that will come after you. But because you didn't ask for these other things, I'm going to give you many of those as well. So what are some of the other things he gives uh, Solomon other than the wisdom or the discerning heart? What else does he say? Honor. Honor. And then what Ms. Glenn had said earlier, he says, I'll give you riches and honor. And there's no stipulation for those. He just says, I'm going to give you riches and honor. And to the degree that no one like you will arise before you or after you. So that much honor and, and that much, those, that many riches. And there's a last little kind of blessing, but there's a stipulation for this one. He says, if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I'll prolong your days. So he says, I'm going to grant you this wise heart that you want. I'm going to give you riches and honor. And if you're obedient like your father, I'll make, I'll prolong your days. I'll give you a long life. So that's like the spiritual jackpot. I mean, that's like, you know, good job, Solomon. And so the fact that Solomon was, I think it's kind of ironic. He was wise enough at this age to know any wisdom was pretty impressive. And so at least at the outset of his reign, Solomon had been a good student of his father and had learned to rely on the Lord and saw his need for godly wisdom. So at least he started out on the right foot. Now we'll learn very quickly that uh, he fell prey to the worldly influences around him, so this did not last as it did with his father David. Now before we go into Solomon's reign as king, there's a little parenthetical insert, but I think it's very important to kind of know to get a flavor of Solomon's behavior during this time, during his reign, and kind of what was going on spiritually in the nation Israel. So the, the passage, is, the passage that Zeke read for us, the very beginning of that, 1 Kings 3, 3, says, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So that implies that he was like his father David, except in this way. And then the next sentence goes on to say, The king, Solomon, went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And he offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So what is the big deal about sacrificing on the high places or this great high place in Gibeon? Like, what's the big deal? What is, what is a high place? Is that just, you know, a little higher elevation? Well, the high places were actually very significant. These were sites or locations of pagan idolatry. This, these are, this is where, you know, cultic, evil, vile practices took place uh, from, the, from among the Canaanite peoples in Canaan prior to the Israelites arriving. So these high places were often like hilltops, mountainsides, where altars were made to various and sundry gods, child <laughs> sacrifice, orgies, all kinds of debauchery took place on these sites. And the Israelites were told, before they ever entered the Promised Land, get rid of them, tear them down, do not, you know, don't be going there, basically. And so, um, unfortunately, this command was disobeyed. But who has Numbers 33, 50 to 53? Who's got that? Okay. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, you drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols, and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Thank you. So Moses is still alive. This is back in the wilderness. 
Joshua, he's still alive. He hasn't passed away. Joshua isn't in charge yet. They're not even going over to um, to Canaan, crossing the Jordan River yet. And God tells Moses to tell the people, when you go into the promised land, destroy the stone idols. Destroy the cast iron, silver, gold, molten idols and tear down those high places. So if God wanted his people to tear down these sites, I think it is certainly, we can certainly extrapolate, he certainly didn't want them worshiping him on these lo- at these locations or on these sites. So this is what was happening. The Israelites were using these former pagan uh, sites of pagan worship and ritual to go through the motions of worshiping the, uh, the one true God. So this kind of begs the question, where were they supposed to be worshiping? So here we are in Israel's history, we're post wilderness wandering, post conquest of Canaan, post period of the judges, 80 plus years into the monarchy, the Israelites are still supposed to be worshiping in the tabernacle. But ironically, we don't hear much or think much about the tabernacle. We think about the tabernacle when Israel's moving through the wilderness because that was where God's spirit dwelt and that was what told the Israelites when to stay, when to go. The cloud of, uh, the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And when that moved, they moved, they packed it up, moved. And when it stayed steady, they stayed where they were. And so we don't really think much about it. So where in the world was the tabernacle during all this? So got a little bit of history. When the Israelites first entered the promised land with Joshua, going uh, crossing the Jordan River, immediately the uh, tabernacle, the mosaic tabernacle, meaning tabernacle constructed in the wilderness overseen by Moses, uh, landed in Gilgal. And it stayed there for a while, and then it was moved to Shiloh. It stayed in Shiloh until the period of Eli the high priest and his understudy that we talked about last week, Samuel. And remember, Samuel was the last judge, a priest, and a prophet. And so the temple, the tabernacle was still there. And so they were going through, you know, actually leading worship in the tabernacle as prescribed at Shiloh. But during this time, the Israelites continued to be hassled and just berated and tormented by the Philistines. And so the Israelites had this great plan. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant, where God's Spirit dwells, out of the tabernacle and take it into battle and see what happens. And they kind of consider that to be their lucky rabbit's foot, so to speak. Uh, That will surely give us a victory. Well, unfortunately, in that particular skirmish, the the Philistines uh, prevailed and took possession of the Ark of the Covenant. So now you have an empty shell of a tabernacle still hanging out in Shiloh. Ark of the Covenant is with the Philistines. All kinds of crazy stuff happens. Idols um, in in pagan temples, a temple to Dagon. They, they show up the next day, and this temple's face down, head off, hands off, fallen before the Ark of the Covenant. There's illness, there's pestilence. And after about seven or eight months, the, the uh, uh, Philistines are like, get this thing out of our territory. So they put it on a cart, send it back into Israelite territory. So now the Ark of the Covenant is back in Israelite territory, still in Canaan, and it ends up at this guy's house, Abinadab's house. It stays there for like 20 years. So again, you still have the shell of a tabernacle, no Ark of the Covenant, probably the most important piece of furniture in that tabernacle, not there. It's at this guy's house. Nobody sees the importance of getting this piece of furniture back to the tabernacle. And during this time, this is when 
there, more and more of the Israelites start worshiping on these high places and saying, we're just going to convert all these old worship centers into places where we can do what we need to do to kind of get by, uh, to appease God. When David comes to reign, when he becomes king of Israel, he decides at one point, I'm going back and I'm getting that ark. I'm going to get the ark of the covenant and I'm going to bring it to Jerusalem where it belongs because Jerusalem is the capital. This is our center. This should be the center of worship. And that is where he wanted to build a temple. We'll talk about that in a minute. So he oversees the, the transport of the Ark of the Covenant from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem. And y'all, some of y'all may remember the, st- the story about it was on a cart pulled by oxen. Poor Uzzah. Uzzah? I don't know how you say his name. He, uh, like, it starts to topple, starts to slide. He reaches out to steady it. God strikes him down right there. Even though the Israelites had treated this Ark of the Covenant ridiculously, I mean, taking it into battle, having it captured, leaving it at some guy's house, they had no respect or reverence for this piece of furniture that was supposed to possess God's spirit. God still had definite rules and regulations as to how he wanted wanted it treated. So David gets the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He's constructed this tent. And he says, this is going to be our tabernacle. So it's kind of the Davidic tabernacle. Brings the Ark of the Covenant in. God's Spirit comes back to the Ark of the Covenant. And there is joyous, rapturous worship. The Israelites are worshiping God beyond the veil. There's no heavy veil separating where only the high priest is going in. These Israelites are worshiping. And God is allowing this. And so you have... Rapturous. Y'all may remember the story too. This is when um, David's wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, sees him dancing crazy. He's so excited to have this Ark of the Covenant back. And she thinks he's drunk or crazy. And she's like, that husband of mine. So this is how excited these people are to have the Ark of the Covenant back in, or in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the tabernacle has now been moved to Gibeon. And Gibeon is an Amorite city full of these high places, with the largest high place that that passage talked about, Solomon going to Gibeon, where the great high place was to offer sacrifices. So picture this. In Gibeon, you have the shell of a tabernacle, a tent. Ark of the Covenant, not there. Priests going in and out, doing their duty, gotta make the donuts, you know, got doing their sacrifices. The presence of God is not there. The Ark of the Covenant is not there. Just going through the motions and doing it in, in locations where they were prohibited to even be. Okay, so picture that. Contrast that with David and the Israelites that are in Jerusalem. The Spirit of God has indwelt the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant in this tent. Joyous, rapturous worship, singing, dancing. Anyway, um, I don't know how we'd re- react to that here at Wayne Chapel. But anyway, lots of exciting worship going on. And so... I don't really know why God allowed this to happen because obviously God gave, you know, rules and regulations, the Levitical code as to what those priests were supposed to be doing. But it is a stark contrast between religion and relationship. What those priests were doing in Gibeon was going through the motions of ritual and religion and the, the letter of the law. And what David was doing was worshiping the one true God. He had a relationship with God, and he was so excited about God's presence being back with the Israelites. 
So this persisted for a while because we're going to learn what Solomon is allowed, what David wanted to do, and then what Solomon was allowed to do when it came to worship. But this is important because we just read a passage that this third king of Israel, Solomon, this guy who's gotten all this wisdom now, before he's given the wisdom, is still offering sacrifices on the high places. And FYI, he's not a priest. He's not technically supposed to be offering sacrifices. That's the, the priestly role. And so Solomon, um, although he's got some things right, he still, it, he still isn't doing things exactly the way he's supposed to be doing. So his father had things a little bit more in order. So I know that's a whole lot of history, and I see some eyes glazing over, and I apologize, but I get excited just figuring out, you know, what was going on, and see, I just think it's amazing when God gives us a picture of, I want to be David worshiping at the feet of Jesus. I don't want to be those priests going through the motions of a empty ritual. Does that make sense? Thoughts, comments, questions? Alrighty, so... That's the whole point of that first of that first passage, the first section of that passage uh, in First Kings. So from there we go to the first, uh, the key event here. Uh, two key events in the life of Solomon. The first is that he, obviously, as I've said many times, was the third king of Israel, and he too had a forty-year reign. So that file away that Bible trivia. Saul, David, Solomon all reigned for forty years, and the second key event for Solomon was the temple. David's desire, Solomon's father David, so desired to build a house for the Lord. And I think that we see evidence of that based on what I just described about how vitally important it was for him to bring that the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But because of the bloodshed and the war uh, that surrounded his household, God did not allow him, David, to build that temple. And so um, if you want to make a note, 2 Samuel 12.10 is the, the passage where God does not allow him to do that. It's basically the curse. So he draws up the plans that his son Solomon will actually have the opportunity to implement. So Solomon will build God's temple. And Solomon sets to work on a permanent structure for the nation Israel where they can together in one location, in a permanent spot, worship the one true God. It takes more than seven years to build this structure. It was finished in 953 B.C. and would eventually be destroyed during the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. And so, again, in your notes, just some pictures. I mean, obviously, artist rendition. You know, none of us were there. Was there. So we don't know exactly, but this is artist rendition. And then much like I had with the tabernacle, a picture of what it might have looked at like and then more of a diagram and, you know, again, we could go into weeks and weeks and weeks on the different pieces of furniture and what they all meant. A similar setup to the tabernacle. The main thing I want to point out is, obviously, the Holy of Holies separated by the veil. And when we get to the person of Jesus, we'll talk a lot about that veil. That was, that was a pretty amazing veil. And that has much more significance down the road, too. This was where, you know... The, this was kind of the common man's court, and then priest, and then only the high priest allowed to go through the veil into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sin. And just like with the tabernacle, every piece of furniture, every structure, the way that everything was uh, set up, fraught with symbolism and significance. And so nothing was done by accident. It wasn't like, well, let's just slap this you know, lamp up here, or let's put this bowl here. Everything had purpose and significance. 
So, just as with the tabernacle in the wilderness, after Moses completed construction, so it was with Solomon's temple. As soon as construction's complete, God inhabits the temple. Who has Second Chronicles 7, 1 to 3? When Solomon, Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endures forever. Thank you. What a sight that must have been. This glorious temple is finally constructed. And as Solomon says, Amen, fire comes down, consumes the offerings, and the the glory of God so fills this structure that the priests cannot even enter. And folks are on the ground, faces bowed to the pavement in worship and awe. That's Unbelievable. Um, So there was no question God is pleased with this structure and he is now inhabiting this building for continued worship by the Israelites. So surely now that Israel has a permanent place to worship as a country, as a nation, surely things will go smoothly and they'll get down to the business of serving God. Right? Maybe not. Um, Maybe, maybe not. So... The key relationship here with uh, King Solomon is women, uh, and that's kind of vague, but uh, yeah, and he had lots of them. You, you all know the stories about Solomon. He had an a, a insatiable fondness for women, mostly foreign women, who were pagan, not necessarily just Israelite women who worshipped and, and uh, loved the one true God. Now, many of these relationships that he had were treaties and diplomatic arrangements and agreements, and not it was not all love and roses and you know romance with all of these women. Seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines. Seven hundred wives, three hundred mistresses. I can't even fathom the cat fights in that. In that I can't even in that palace. Woo! Yeah. So. I, I just, I didn't know even a whole lot I could say. Who's got 1 Kings 11, 1 to 4? I'll let God's word say it about that. Yeah, someone. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Thank you. What a sad passage after that great start. I, you know, he asked for wisdom. God gave him this, this supernatural, godly wisdom, yet he let this passion for these women tear him away from the God that he loved. And does anyone else find it ironic that one of the first women mentioned in this list is daughter of Pharaoh? Uh, Hello, Egyptians that enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. Um, You know, it's God had made it clear prior to their entering Canaan, 
you are not to intermarry. This was not a new command. This was not something that Solomon wasn't aware of, didn't know about. And for the very reason that God had warned them, that's what happened to Solomon. So God, uh, God had said, they will lead you astray. They will tear you away from me. And that's exactly what happened. So Solomon marries all these women. They all, I mean, many have different gods. I'm sure there was just a plurality of gods being worshipped in the palace during this time. And slowly as his reign progressed, his heart is taken away, pulled away from the one true God toward these other gods. And he allows this to happen. I don't know why God allowed Solomon to have this many wives and concubines. He obviously allowed it. I don't know why he did, but it certainly was not his will. That was not his desire for, um, for the king of his chosen people. And I would submit to you that Solomon's failure as a spiritual leader at home resulted in a lot of Israel's spiritual failures as a nation. So he could not lead at home and could not see that only the one true God was being worshipped at home. And so that sort of spilled out into his reign as king over God's people. Questions, comments about that? Anybody disagree? And it says, this passage even says, like I mentioned, some of these women were, you know, given to him by other, you know, kings and leaders and rulers and that kind of stuff. But it says he clung to these women in love. So he evidently felt like he was smitten with at least some of them. I don't know. I mean, it takes you three plus years to even... See, what a night. <laughs> Make I cannot even imagine. You don't want to have a cold when it's, you know, you don't want to be sick when it's your turn. Golly. It's be another three and a half years for us, honey. From, from Solomon, we go to a very tumultuous time period for the nation of Israel. After Solomon's death, the tribes' allegiances to one another continues to weaken, and they begin to pull apart as a united uh, nation and begin to kind of turn inward. And what results is a weakened nation and ultimately a split. Uh, the nation Israel splits into two separate kingdoms. A northern kingdom, this is in your notes, I believe, a northern kingdom, the, the northern ten most tribes, or northernmost ten tribes, they call themselves Israel. Their capital was Samaria. Their, their king, their first king was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the son of Nebat, a, son, a servant of Solomon, who was influential in Solomon's army. So basically it was, you know, Solomon had like a right-hand man in his army, and his son, Jeroboam, is made king over Israel. And uh, ultimately, this northern kingdom will be captured by Assyria in 722 B.C., the southernmost kingdom, or southernmost tribes, became the southern kingdom, uh, Benjamin and Judah, and so the other ten were everybody else. Called, they called themselves Judah. The capital was Jerusalem, which was supposed to be the true capital of Israel. Their first king was Rehoboam, who was actually a son of Solomon, and they would be captured by Babylon in 586 BC. And a little bit of um, Bible trivia, just a file away somewhere. Anybody remember? Four teenagers from Judah, the southern kingdom, who were captured during that Babylonian captivity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. There you go. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so now we have two separate kingdoms. And this is where, when you read through the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it gets kind of confusing. 
because it'll say, so-and-so, the king of Israel, so-and-so, excuse me, king of Israel, so-and-so, king of Judah. So there were individual kings over each of these kingdoms. A few that you may or may not have heard of, Israel, a few of Israel's kings, Omri, Jehu, Joash, and Ahab. Ahab is a very famous one because he was married to Jezebel. Jezebel. And then the kings of Judah, some famous ones here too, Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah, Ahaz, Ammon, and Uzziah. Um, and unfortunately, you don't have to read very far into these two books, or these four books, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You get a snippet within just a few verses of what kind of king this was. So-and-so reigned over Israel for however many years, and he did not follow the Lord. I mean, it's like he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or he did good in the sight of the Lord. I mean, it's pretty, it's like, you know, they kind of have, some of the guys have their little range just summarized in just a few verses. Others, it's chapters and chapters. But the idea is lots of kings are going to come and go during this time period. And I would submit because those Israelites that were involved in the early conquest of Canaan did not tear down these high places and did not drive out the, the other people that were in Canaan as they were supposed to, we're going to see an awful lot of idolatry and paganism continuing within the Israelite camps throughout the period of the uh, kings of Israel and Judah. The key uh, event here, I mean, there's so many, just like I did basically with the judges, I picked one or two, so for this one I just picked one. Uzziah was a very well, a fairly well-known king of Judah. I think my dad just not too long ago preached a sermon about him because he was preaching from Isaiah 6. And if you recall, the very familiar passage, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, begins in the year of King Uzziah's death. Um, and so that kind of puts that into a time perspective. But King Uzziah was actually a godly king initially of Judah. And uh, who has Second Chronicles 26, 3 through 5? Who's got that one? Yes. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. And he ruled 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah, and she was from Jerusalem. He did what the Lord said was right, just as his father Amaziah had done. Uzziah obeyed God while Zechariah was alive because he taught Uzziah how to respect and obey God. And as long as Uzziah obeyed the Lord, God gave him success. Thank you. 16 years old. Woo, I'm just here to tell you, we got a 15 and a half year old, and sometimes he didn't know when to come in out of the rain. I'm like, how in the world? But God raised up this individual, and it says that this young man did right in the sight of the Lord. Maybe they were just a whole lot more mature back then. I don't know. So, y'all may remember the story, for 52 years Uzziah reigned, and he put his faith in the Lord initially, but near the end of his life, he began to put his faith in his accomplishments and what he had been able to do in Judah, and he began to usurp the power and authority of the priests. And in Second Chronicles 26, we read that he wanted to offer incense on the altar of incense in the temple. He was immediately reprimanded for this. God struck him immediately with leprosy, and he lived out the rest of his days in seclusion. He lived out the rest of his days alone. So it was kind of a sad ending, but 52 years he reigned, and for the majority of that, he was following the Lord. So he was one of the good guys. There are plenty of these that you read in this, in this section of the Old Testament that certainly were not good for the nation Israel or the nation Judah, technically two separate kingdoms at this point. And the key relationship here is, is kind of vague, but basically God 
judges these kings on a moral standard. And so, as I mentioned before, you read along very quickly, there's like a plumb line. And if they followed God's will, then many times their reign prospered. If they did not follow God's will, then many times their reign was cut short. Now, not always, because Ahab was around for a while, and he did some pretty horrible things, many times at the urging of his wife Jezebel. But God judges these kings based on how obedient they are and responds accordingly by hindering or prospering their reign. So we're going to talk next week about some of the prophets. And it, when, I'm, when I read those prophets and what they were prophesying about, many times they were speaking against what the king of Israel or Judah was doing. And when we see what the leaders of God's people were leading them into, this was a pretty despicable time in Israel's history. I think I say that like about ten times during this whole highway of life. But anyway, it's not getting better. It's definitely kind of getting a little bit worse. So on that bright note, anybody have any questions, comments, concerns, thoughts? No, I don't know. They're so quiet tonight. Uh, is David allowed to sing? I don't know. He's, you know, I've seen, I've seen things going by, but he's just, yeah. Uh, actually, I think uh, it's interesting. Early on, you talked about how uh, Solomon, God came to Solomon, but it happened in a dream. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's kind of interesting how I think how God has used that over the over the years. Right. Even even now, in some cultures. You hear about how God still speaks to people in that way. We don't hear so much about it here in the United States, and I don't want to freak anybody out. But Tell, like, mention, like, like, talk like, about like we get we get letters at radio from you know, people from Muslim cultures or you know Middle East or other places that say, you know, I had a dream and Jesus came to me and said that Islam is a lie and I need to, you know consider Jesus and read the Bible. And I mean, it's nothing that's against the scripture. So you just have to kind of hold it up to, does it line up with what you would see in the Bible? It's not, there's nothing contrary there. So it's kind of fascinating. God, for whatever reason, still chooses to, to do that in some instances. I, I think it's valid. I mean, think about the significant dreams throughout scripture. Jacob, John. Um, yeah, so... Any other thoughts, comments? We only have four more sessions. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> We're not even doing the Old Testament yet. we got to start flying. Yeah. Well, the, and the New Testament goes a whole lot faster. But anyway, thank you for your attention. I appreciate it very much.